0: All right, now uh, we're talking about the dis- uh, in just an introductory way about discipleship in the book of Acts. And we talked about the evidence for the success of the disciples' ministry. There were great numbers that came to know Jesus Christ. And then we started talking about the explanation of that success. And uh, we talked about the fact that the first thing uh, that was involved were that the disciples themselves were prepared. They were prepared uh, by the work of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord as they spent time with the Lord and then were sent out by Him. And then secondly, uh, the preaching of the disciples themselves. Uh, those disciples, especially Peter, uh, got involved in ministry and preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then Stephen as well ministered in that way. The content of all three of those messages basically was based upon the Old Testament truth, a clear indication that Christ's ministry in his post-resurrection ministry uh, had been very effective in, uh, in, in bringing these men to an understanding of the correlation between the uh, ministry of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant to the New Covenant in Jesus Christ and the relationship of the prophecies of the messiah to the coming of Christ and his death and his suffering and the resurrection uh, hints that we have in the old testament and how they relate uh, to new testament truth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular and so that the, the uh, preaching of the disciples had a, a great effect as well and then as we finished up last week we talked a little bit about Ananias and Sapphira and about the uh, the purity of the church. And because the church was a pure church, because of the fact that God's Holy Spirit uh, kept the church pure, um, there, was, um, there was great result. And uh, even though it is not God's purpose, um, let me back up just a second and start, uh, start a little different way. God had a number of things that he did at the beginning of each new era of church history. For instance, there were, there were miracles, uh, excuse me, I said church history, of, of history, various uh, methods of God's dealing with men. Uh, first of all, uh, there, there were miracles, as an example. Um, you realize that uh, when uh, the people, previous to the people's coming to Mount Sinai, they had the opportunity of seeing the great miracles by Moses. And uh, uh, there, uh, then a little bit later when the people had gone through a time of gross apostasy um, and uh, there, was a, there was a whole new uh, direction that the nation had taken now under the monarchy. Um, the, the, the time of the prophets uh, was, a, was the, the very, a very ripe time. And, um, and so again the, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha were very prominent at the beginning of that era. And then, of course, when Jesus Christ came, uh, he performed great miracles. And, uh, and then at the beginning of the apostolic era, uh, there were great miracles that were performed. All right. So, so uh, it, the fascinating thing when you study it is that those, those spectacular miracles were very, very brief and temporary. They didn't last for long. I've always been fascinated with the fact that uh, in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul excuse me, the apostle Peter, uh, could heal people at will. Um, he, all he, he didn't even pray for them. They didn't even have to have faith. In fact, some people were even healed uh, uh, when, when, uh, uh, by his handkerchief. Uh, some people, unfortunately, today misinterpret that, and they mail handkerchiefs out so people can be healed. But I haven't heard of any real cases of healing as a result, except maybe psychosomatic healing as a result of handkerchiefs being mailed out, you see. But Peter, actually that happened with Peter. And yet, the Apostle Paul, at a later time, though Paul also had the ability to heal, the Apostle Paul could not heal several people. He couldn't even heal himself, he had a thorn in the flesh. And Epaphroditus was ill, almost unto death. But apparently Paul uh, couldn't do anything for him, and there were others. And so you see, even when the apostolic era was still going on, those miracles were already fading from the picture. And already one of the early books was James, and James gets into the act and says, here is the way to conduct healing, and that is for the prayer of faith to be given by the elders of the church. And, uh, but that's not the same kind of healing that Peter had, where great miraculous things happened. The same thing was true in regard to miracles. There were miracles in the early chapters of Acts, but in the later chapters of Acts you find only a few. They were fading from the picture. Alright? Now that's just one thing, but there's something else. And uh, there are several others that I could mention that sort of were a part of introducing a new era. But another thing that was, uh, was a part of introducing an, a new era was judgment. That is, God dealt in judgment. Do you remember at Mount Sinai, as an example, how quickly and swiftly God dealt in judgment upon the people when they were worshiping idols. Later on, they did worse things, by far, than what they did at Sinai, if you think in terms of degrees of sin. It's by far worse to send your children, or, 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 or uh, put your children forth to Moloch and, uh, and sacrifice your children uh, inside of a, of a brazen calf uh, that's heated white hot like an oven. Uh, far worse to do that than dance around an idol like they did at the bottom of Mount Sinai, at least as we view it. It certainly would be worse. And yet God at a later period did not deal in the same kind of swift judgment. That he did at the beginning of an era. And you find you find uh, uh, that throughout Scripture, whenever there was a uh, the introduction of a new thrust, as far as God was concerned, that accompanying that came swift judgment. All right. Now we have here the beginning of a new era. Church, the church is just beginning. And so that fear would fall upon the souls of those individuals in that church. And so that historically we would know what God thinks of even that that seems to be a rather small sin, a sin of lying. Yet God does not countenance sin among his people. And God gave us this example so we would know it then to intensify the example, there is an ongoing pattern. Talked about in 1st Corinthians, talked about in 1st John chapter 5, it is the sin unto death. It is possible for any Christian at some point in his life and experience to sow sin against light that God will take his physical life. His soul will be saved. But he'll be saved, yet so as by fire, that is, his works will be burned up. And uh, certainly there'll be loss of reward as a result. There's the sin unto death. And so you see, even though God dealt, uh, doesn't deal as swiftly in judgment as he did with Ananias and Sapphira, or else a lot of us would be dead. Do you realize that? Think of that for a moment. Just think of it. How many times did you say that you were going to do something in the local church when you know good and well you had no intention of following through and following it to completion? I'm not going to ask for hands. It'd be too embarrassing. But by the standard of the swift judgment of the beginning of that era, there was swift judgment over Lying, which is just the same as what people do today, without the swift judgment. But you say, well then, does that mean that we are getting away with it and they didn't? No. The swift judgment was to set before us the, the responsibility we have to keep from that kind of sin because we have an inkling of how vile it is in the sight of God. And Therefore, we are told that as we come to the Lord's table, we are to examine ourselves. And if we don't, then, my friend, you never know when we'll cross that line, and God will say, all right, why cumbers he the ground any longer? He's doing my name more harm than he is good and in such a case many might be sick and some will even die as a result now you see the purity of the church is just as available today as it was then except God does not deal as overtly and swiftly with the sin as he did in this case because this was a prototype it is to serve as a warning to the New Testament church and to all succeeding generations that God hates sin. And you see, it's, it behooves us to search our hearts and make mighty certain, mighty certain, that there is nothing in our lives hindering to God's Holy Spirit. When I think of the purity of the Church and the responsibility that there is, I can't help but think of the story of Achan who took the accursed thing in the time of Joshua. And you know, I think that often a Church that seems to be moving along in a positive direction all of a sudden will come to a screeching halt, at least it appears as though The blessing that was once there is no longer there. We come up against things that before we would have bowled over like the walls of Jericho. But suddenly now we find ourselves in defeat rather than victory. And people wonder why. And I believe that the scripture is very clear that when there is an Achan in the camp, That we cannot expect to be victorious. And we need to pray, and I I mean this now, we need to pray that God will give evidence. This is a scary thing to say, all right? But that God will give evidence, that God will bring to light any sin. In the life of the pastor, in the lives of the elders, in the lives of the leadership in the church, in the lives of the individual member, in the lives of those that are attending, that he will bring to light any hindering sin that is not being dealt with so that it can be dealt with. Are you willing to pray that way? Are you willing to pray that God will bring to light sin in a congregation of people? I have a friend uh, who was many years a missionary with Sudan Interior Mission. and. he uh, was home, uh, as many of the missionaries are from time to time, uh, bring him home to put him in the home office, and that was what had happened to Harold. And, um, so he was working here, and as a part of his responsibility um, with the mission, he went to investigate um, an area of Africa, Central Africa, uh, which had reports had come out rather reluctantly, but they'd come out that there had been revival going on perpetually for nearly 50 years at that time. 50 years now, most things, most of the time, when revival comes, uh, everybody grabs hold of it and publicizes it until they kill it. You know, uh, you don't advertise revival uh, when God does something, it's unique. And it's something that people ought to accept and praise the Lord for, and yet God was blessing in this place. And when we talk about revival, we're not talking about far-out stuff. We're talking about just the gentle uh, brooding of the Holy Spirit over an area, keeping the church pure. And uh, when Harold went to the field, uh, God put his hand upon him to be used. Uh, in a marvelous way, among those people he who went there to 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 look and to see what was happening, uh, so he 'd understand it better as people asked questions and Then God put his hand upon Harold and began to greatly use him there and When he came back, we had occasion to talk and he shared with with us that there were three things that were characteristic of that uh, that perpetual revival and again don't think of it in terms of spectacular it's not a spectacular thing except thousands of people were coming to know jesus christ as savior that's spectacular enough Uh, and christians were staying right with each other which was uh you know that's a miracle in any society Um, but uh, the three things they said were really characteristic where there was a oneness they were they were of one mind And if they came to a place where there was any lack of oneness in any of the churches or among any of the people, they would get on their knees and they would pray and seek the mind of the Lord until they came to one mind. They became convinced that the Holy Spirit only has one will. (laughs) Guess what? That's what God's Word says. I beseech, beseech Eudeus and beseech Syndice that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And you see, there's one thing that hinders oneness, and it's pride. Pride is self-sufficiency. Where you say, I don't need anybody, I got the answer. Now it doesn't make any difference how big the answer is, or how little the answer is, if you think you don't need God, if you think you don't need people, in any kind of a situation, that is pride. Humility on the other hand, is simply saying, I'm God sufficient. I can't do anything in myself, I need God and I need God's people. And so pride will spoil oneness and so often there's a hindrance of the holy spirit simply because there are people who cannot be of one mind they cannot agree they cannot come to a to a place of great uh, of of real love and understanding of the of the uh, other individuals point of view i was interested in studying the life of john calvin Uh, and uh, some of the writings of that era uh, to discover that the problem that today you see one guy says I'm a Calvinist and another guy says I'm an Armenian Uh, the followers of Arminius uh, have one concept of uh, election and uh, the followers of Calvin have another concept of of election and uh, uh, the Calvinist um, uh, and the Armenian today argue over the thing on the basis of theology. But historically, it was not theology over which Calvin and Armenia split. Did you know that? They split over the fact that they both wanted the highest seat. It was a personality conflict, not a theological conflict. Down through the ages, the theological conflict has been been the thing that's blamed for that. But chances are pretty good that Arminius and Calvin were not that far apart. That they weren't as far apart as people make them out to be today. It was where they placed the emphasis and Arminius placed the emphasis on the wrong syllable, as far as uh, Calvin was concerned, and vice versa. But today, two major sects of Christianity, two major groupings of Christianity, use the name in regard to theological belief. And had Calvin and Arminius been able to settle their personal differences, They might have both contributed to the unity of the church. And if you trace through church history, almost every single split, difficulty, problem is not basically over theology, although they'll often use theology for a whipping boy and they'll they'll, uh, go to work on it. But it's usually not that, it is usually over personality conflicts. I think of a particular division that came in a denomination with which I'm very familiar. And I sat and listened to the debate. And I can guarantee you that the people theologically were not more than a smidgen apart. The problem was it was a power struggle men that were acting like boys like babies and it brought about a great division now that's not always true there are times where there is biblical separation from false brethren and we should recognize that as well but many times it boils down to a personality conflict uh, like we have in Third John loving to have the preeminence. Theotrophes loves to have the preeminence. All right. Now, oneness then is the first thing. The second one was openness. Openness was just simply where where the the terms of Matthew eighteen were followed continuously. That, hey, I've got a problem I go to you and I say, My friend, I have a problem. Instead of this other route, I I think that Christians fail to realize the destructive force that we have when we start talking about other people when they are not there to hear the charge. God says, You go alone. Nobody likes to do that. And it takes a great deal of understanding of God's purpose before we're willing to go to a person alone and confront him with a disagreement. But you're to go alone, and if he will not hear you, then you're to go with witnesses, preferably mature leaders who are neutral doesn't mean you get a couple of your friends and gang up on the guy. Oh no. You bring in neutral observers to hear the case and you always take the risk that they'll point the finger at you and say you're wrong. And then, if that doesn't do it, he still won't hear you, then it's to be brought to the attention of the official ruling body of the church. In a congregational church, a church with congregational form of government—that would be the entire congregation. In the case of eldership, it would be the ruling elders. But it would be the whole—it would be the whole ruling body—to hear the matter and then to do, to arbitrate and to come to a decision. There's an exception to that. The exception is that if there is an elder who is who is involved in something that is verified by two or three witnesses in such a case it is to be brought to the body publicly he is to be reprimanded publicly why Scripture makes it clear so that everybody will fear. Now, that's a tough thing. The poor elder doesn't have a chance, you know. So he better keep, keep his act together because if he does something overt in that way, he's to be dealt with publicly. And this church in Africa, these churches in this region about a hundred miles in diameter, they had... This kind of an attitude, and this is the way they dealt with things. And a missionary who, you see, was a white man in black Africa, could have an African come up to him and look him in the eye and say, My brother, I believe you were wrong in that case. And they would deal with the thing as brothers. And they'd kneel down, and they'd pray together. That's what we mean by openness. Nobody ever had to guard his words in the sense of holding back his his true inclination. He didn't have to uh, wonder if he was going to be misunderstood because there was a minimum of misunderstanding. People just were honest with each other. That didn't mean that they got together and tried to dream up, can you top this, as far as a list of sins that they'd committed. It's not what I'm talking about. They just kept it up to date. And they were honest and open. And the third thing was brokenness. A broken and a contrite heart I will not despise, says the Lord. And Christians need to learn how to weep with those that weep as well as rejoice with those that rejoice. They need to have a brokenness. That doesn't mean necessarily that everybody has to show outwardly emotion. It's not outward emotion that's really important. It's the inward brokenness. Are you really constantly broken before God? Scripture tells the children of Israel book of Jeremiah, to break up their follow ground. Christ put it a little different way. He said that when you've got a heart that is like the wayside soil, Satan cometh immediately and taketh the word out of it. If we don't have a brokenness, a breaking up of our follow ground, if we have allowed things to linger until the soil has become hard, then we are not going to be able to have God's very best. And as a result of that kind of of simple, if you please, formula, there was the maintenance of a real moving of the Spirit of God in that church. Now that's the same kind of thing that happened in the early church. And what do you you have? You have Paul saying in the book of Galatians, I walked up to Peter and confronted him to his face. Why? Because... When, when, the, when, the, uh, when he came to Antioch, he sat down with the Gentiles, ate with them, fellowshiped with them, but then he found out James was coming. And James was leaning a little toward the circumcision. And so therefore, when he heard that James and some of the company of the Jews were coming, then he backed off and he no longer would fellowship with the Gentiles because he was afraid of what they might think of him. And Paul tch, went to another apostle and said Peter you're wrong well, that's necessary sometimes and so therefore we need to have this kind of an attitude a relationship that comes that comes really uh, brings really a purity to the body of Christ and so there's a desperate need for that kind of thing. Now, if you look again at Acts 5, and look at verse 11, then you will see the result. Actually, there are four results. It says, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes both of men and women. Let me say a couple of things. First of all, the result of purity here was fear, power, verse 12, and new converts and unity. They were one accord in verse 12 as well. So there was a unity, and then there were new converts. But you know, when a thing like that happens in a church, you don't have people anymore joining for personal reasons or for material reasons or for human interest. I mean, who wants to be a part of a thing like that where you blow it and drop dead? You've really got to believe. You've really got to believe in this, you see. And so therefore, I'm sure that this separated the men from the boys on this thing. Because they'd heard about Ananias and Sapphira. And so there was tremendous result. Is it any wonder that they were successful with that kind of dealing with sin and that kind of purity in the church? Now, there's a third thing. Fourth thing. That was the third thing. There's a fourth thing. And that is, there was also a pre conditioning of the people. A preconditioning of the people. Now, let's go back to Acts 2 to look at this for a moment. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. All right, now listen. These people were people that were contemporaries with Jesus Christ. There were a number of people, hearing this sermon by Peter, who had actually been involved in the events that took place on the cross of Calvary. There were many people, undoubtedly, who had come for Passover. Uh, They had come to the city, they were strangers from out of town. They had probably stayed over for 50 days because the travel wasn't as easy as it is today. And uh, so these people that came from all over the world for Pentecost, some of them maybe had been there at that time. At least the residents of Jerusalem, of course, knew what had happened. There was a, a preparation. The people had come, usually they come to the Feast of Pentecost several days before. And uh, uh, if they hadn't been there during the entire time between Passover and Pentecost, they would have come several days before. And the, the rumors were buzzing. Can you imagine what was being said? people were saying this fellow was we chose Barabbas instead of Christ and and Christ was crucified and everybody says he raised from the dead and all of these things were going on so they had heard all of this and this had prepared them and peter capitalized upon the events that had taken place to use it as an opportunity to preach the gospel Now that was a unique situation that could only happen once in history because Christ will only die once in history. He will only rise from the grave once in history. That was totally unique. You say, well then it's not fair for you to point that out as one of the reasons for their success. But let me ask you, does not God precondition people today? Well, after hearing Don Richardson I'm more convinced than ever that God indeed does. But not only in a pagan culture where they have the concept of the peace child or as Don brought out in the men's meeting, the concept of being born again in some pagan tribes uh, and other things that he mentioned to us. Uh, That is one thing. But how about our own culture? Does God precondition people? Does God put uh, God allow an accident to take place with precise timing so that a Warren Walgren can go into a hospital room and get acquainted with a fellow with a broken neck and four years later have the guy that close to coming to know the Savior? Was he not preconditioned? Has he not been prepared? Are there not conflicts that bring people to the brink I like uh, Colonel Bottomley so clearly brought out in his testimony where where a man who thought he had it made, a self-made man and worshiping his creator, was able to suddenly realize how desperately he needed help. He was preconditioned. Preconditioned by the salvation of his son, preconditioned by a personal tragedy that brought him to the brink. All around you, wherever you are, there are people that are being preconditioned and prepared to hear the claims of Jesus Christ. It's just, I guess, sometimes that we are too blind to see it. Too blind to realize how desperately men need and women and boys and girls and young people need to know Jesus Christ. How desperately people are are groping in darkness. I mean, do you see? Uh, do you see the kid on the street smoking pot as a awful specimen of society? And you pull your self-righteous robes around you, and you walk off, and you say, "I wish he'd get his act together." There might be hope for him if only he'd come around. Guess what? He's never going to come around that way. Do you realize that his trying to get high on marijuana or heroin or something else is a cry for help? He's been preconditioned. He needs some answers. He knows it doesn't satisfy. You know, I, I was working with teenagers, I had one fella in particular who now is really going on with the Lord, so the Lord did miracles in spite of me, I guess. I almost gave up on this guy a hundred times, maybe a thousand. I'd sit in that car till the wee hours of the morning talking with this guy. You know, he was always bringing vodka to the high school parties and and getting the kids to pour a little in their coke. You know, when I wasn't looking, trying to get everybody drunk because boy, that'd really be great. You know, you love guys like that. You know, it's really super to have guys like that on board. <laughs> when you're a youth director, all these Christian kids come home, staggering into their homes, and I don't know what was in that punch the pastor served, but <laughs> you know, I mean, it's really great, you know, and this is one of those guys, see, and I said to him, Bob, Bob, I said, will you just be honest with me once, you're saying you're having a good time, you're saying that that what you're doing is the most satisfying life you can possibly have. I want to ask you, when you're home at night, you're laying on your bed, and the blast is over, and you've sobered up a little bit, and you're looking at that blank ceiling, tell me, does it satisfy then, or isn't there an emptiness down inside your gut? I'll never forget what he said. He said, you got me on that one, preach. He says, you're right. But he says, that's only a little bit. (laughs) Can I go to it? You know, he cast it off very quickly, but I never forgot it. Because listen, that's the way it is. And a guy can be thinking he's having a good time right down the line... You see, there is a preconditioning process. Pascal called it a God shaped vacuum in the human heart that only God can fill. And man is eternally empty without that. Without God filling the vacuum, he's eternally empty. And look, you know, I look out and see some of you people, and I know some of your stories, and I know precisely what happened with you. And because I know that, I know that each of us have been preconditioned for the hearing of the gospel and God is duplicating that over thousands of times and we can be just as successful if we just understand how God is allowing history to come to bear, circumstances to come to bear upon the lives of people, conflicts in their home and their family to come to bear upon their lives so that they're ready to hear the gospel. Look, you know, Uh, Bill Gothard's key to success is just that. That's really all it is. Why do the people flock to hear Bill Gothard? I'll tell you why. Because the guy has learned by experience, and God has gifted him, to recognize where people are at, where they're hurting, and be able to give some biblical answers. You know, in the process You know, not everybody agrees that what he's doing is all right, you know. Usually the people that aren't as successful as he are the ones that are the biggest critics, you know. But the guy has learned what it is, you know, and he hits them over the head with the fact that the Word of God is God inspired the very first session. He takes his stand upon the Word of God as having the answers to human need. That causes all kinds of raised eyebrows. But people that hang in there get their needs met, because it's scripture. And so you see, when you think in terms of the preconditioning of people, any one of us can be equally successful if we'll keep our eyes open and our ears to the ground and recognize that there are people all around us that are being prepared. Now we don't always get them on the first time, Walgreens have worked on the fellow that I mentioned for four years. Two years ago, his wife came to know the Lord as a result of personal crisis in their family. And then she had to learn how to live a godly life in that family. And she's been seeking to do that. It hasn't been easy. And so for a couple of years, she's been trying to live that testimony. And now you see, all of a sudden, the Lord's bringing to bear the gospel upon this guy's life. It's taken time. So don't think that the person across the street or the person next door is an untouchable. Lyman Taylor mentioned back here today that he's been building a relationship with a guy at work by the name of Tony, who's an atheist. And today he accepted the gift from Lyman of a living Bible. He said he'd read it, apparently. Be interesting, won't it? to hear when he comes to know the Lord. One thing after another in the way of circumstances put together to bring a guy to Christ. Are you willing to be the link in the chain that will bring someone to Christ? Don't be too hung up on how many notches you've got on your Bible. Because you see, it's not important how many people you clinch, how many people accept Christ with your presence there. That's not the important thing is. The important thing is, were you faithful? And were you sensitive? And if you were, then you've done your part. Be ready to do it again if the Lord calls on you. But you've done your part for the moment. And if he calls on you to do it again, then do it again. And just be faithful. And that's all any of us have to do. And God will take care of the preconditioning process. But it's very present today, even as it was then. Well then, there's another key, number five. And that is the propagation. I almost changed that today when I was going over my notes. The priority could be either of the word of God. The priority of the Word of God, or the propagation of the Word of God. Let's just take a few selected verses, just see what happens. Chapter 4 and verse 4. But many of them who heard the Word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Verse 29. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. You know, I never could get over this verse and the next one where it says, By stretching forth thy hand to heal, and the signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. That just really had an impact on my life a few years ago when I realized that here were guys whose lives were in jeopardy because they'd preached the gospel. And when they came to the Lord, instead of praying the usual self-centered prayer, Help, Lord, you can't let a thing like this happen. Why me? And all that kind of a prayer. They didn't pray that. What they prayed? Lord. We ask two things. first of all, give us boldness to preach your word. Secondly, continue to give the confirmation of that word through the apostolic signs and wonders. That's what they prayed for. They were praying to get killed. that's what they were praying for because that's what they've been threatened. And they weren't praying, Lord, help me to keep, to know, keep uh, help me to, to know when to keep my mouth shut. Lest I get killed. I don't want to cut my life short. Got to keep serving you silently. <laughs> no, no. They said, Lord, help us to speak forth with boldness thy word. Look at verse 31. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Look at chapter 6. Look at verse two. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them, and said, It is not fitting that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. By the word that word, the way, that word "serve" is diakoina, which is the word from which we get our word deacon. Wherefore, brethren, look out among you. For seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And by the way, if I can say it, you've heard me say it a million times, you're going to hear me say it a million times again, so get used to it. That's the main job of a pastor. The teaching elder, his main job, is a twofold thing prayer and the ministry of the word. And that involves study and involves teaching. But that's the main job. A lot of people have foggy ideas as to what a pastor ought to be doing. All kinds of crazy things. I'd love love sometimes to compile a list of the congregation. The list of what each person individually thinks the pastor ought to do. Then compile the whole list and show that to you. Now, in this church, you're well enough taught that you probably have have, uh, a pretty good idea of what to put down, even though you may not feel that way. Uh, So you probably cheat. But it'd just be fun to take a poll. You'd be be surprised what some people think pastors ought to be doing. And yet right here, you have a very clear teaching concerning the fact that the pastor, who is in Ephesians uh, told that he is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, He's told here, the two areas that are vital in order to accomplish that. We can't, I cannot leave, I cannot leave uh, the study of the word to wait on tables. I'm willing to wait on tables. Waiting on tables is no problem with me. I'd probably be better at that than I am preaching. Because at least it's a non-threatening sort of thing. But you see, God has called me to minister His Word, and it's the Word of God and the priority of the Word of God that that really is the thing. And you know, the crazy notion is that the pastor really what he does, you know, is he just a few seconds before he comes out, he thinks to himself, "Let's see, what shall I speak on tonight?" And he comes out, and with his natural gift of gab, he just turns loose. You know, lets it go. You'd be surprised how many people think that's true. And you know, there are pastors who do exactly that. I know for a fact. You don't grow. Because unless you're getting fresh upon your knees with your open Bible for hours, you can't come fresh into the pulpit. And the result is, week after week, you know, they give out skim milk, and the people starving to death and getting spiritual malnutrition, And they hardly know why they're, why, why they're, it's like starvation. You know, They say that people sometimes get, get so hungry that they no longer have a desire for food. They have to be force fed. You've seen these starving little children over in India and so on where they're bloated from a lack of food. You'd think it'd be the other way around, you know. But there's a period of time where they get bloated and where they have no appetite. And there's some people that just, just have that. But John MacArthur says, sermonettes for Christianettes preached by preacherettes. That's what a lot of people think needs to be done, you know? But a pastor can't do that. He's got to spend time in the Word. And that's why, you know? I, I, there are two reasons, really, why... I don't go out in the building program out there and drive nails. One is because invariably I get the nail in the wrong place anyway. Because I and I don't, it only gets halfway in and then it bends over. Which I isn't that the way you do it? No, that's one reason. That's not my. You know, that's not something I'm good at. I've done it when I was up in Lacey. Boy, I'll tell you, I learned all kinds of trade. We moved a building from. Fort Lewis down the road. That's a story in itself. And, and, uh, and then uh, we had to tear the roof, part of the roof off to get it under the power wires and all of this kind of stuff. And then we had to put the thing back in driving rainstorm. And, you know you, you know the whole thing. It, it was really something. And I had to do it. I, really. Because uh, there were only a handful of men in that church. Somebody had to do it. So I got out there and did it. I'm afraid to do it. But it is not the priority. The first and foremost thing must be the study of God's word. That was true of the apostles. It's true of the pastor teacher today. And we, we as a congregation need to be mature enough to recognize that. And to encourage. You see, it's an infectious thing. As you, as a group, as a smaller group, become aware of this, then you in turn can convey this to other people until the message is heard. And you've got to keep saying it because you've got new people all the time. They keep coming in. Praise the Lord for that. And again, you know, they come in saying, wow, you know, I really enjoy the ministry. And they say, why doesn't the pastor visit everybody in their homes? Why doesn't he do this? And why doesn't he do that? And why doesn't he do the other thing? Why doesn't he run around like a chicken with his head cut off? They don't realize that the two are incompatible. It's an either-or proposition. And so therefore, there has to be that commitment to the word of God on the part of the pastor and upon the congregation, too. I know most of you already know that, so maybe I've been flapping my gums for no good purpose, but I know that some of you needed to hear it. All right. And then it says in verse 7, what happened? It says, after they appointed this group of seven men of honest report filled with the Holy Spirit, see, they were no less spiritually qualified to wait on tables. It was just that their priority was not the preaching ministry. At least at that point. And it says, And the word of God increased. It's inevitable. A guy who, who goes, into his pulp- goes into his pulpit having not had the, the word of God burned into his heart in the study, that man will never be able to feed the sheep. Never be able to provide the needs of the flock as an under-shepherd. But uh, you need need to, to spend time on your face before God with your open Bible and have that poured into your heart. And when you do that in private, then in public, the Word of God will increase and the number of disciples, not just the number of believers, but the number of disciples, multiplied. Now notice just a little while ago it said that they were preaching the Word and there was added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now it's become a process of multiplication because when the word of God is given the priority, then there is the multiplication of individuals. Because I teach you to teach others, Second Timothy two two. I teach you to commit the things that I've heard among many uh, witnesses. I commit to faithful men who should be able to teach, others, to teach others 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 to teach others. You see how it grows as you mature. Then you can bring others to maturity. And there's a multiplication process, and so it says the word of God increased, and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. That was the result of what happened. Look at Acts chapter ten. Whew, where'd the night go? Acts chapter ten, verse thirty-six. And the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. Look at verse 37. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. Verse 44. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell all them who heard the word it's the word of God that is a priority but we're going to have to stop right there Let let me just share with you that you and I as believers in Christ in a day where the Word of God is so available to us, have a tremendous privilege. A tremendous privilege. But I really sometimes get burdened in my own heart about the, the lack of commitment on the part of so many Christians today to the Word of God, we talked about the fact that that um, some people, you know, think a pastor ought to be doing all of all of these other things. And you know, we have had people, dear people, leave our congregation for that very reason. We've had others that have left because they they say. I don't come to church. I've heard this so many times, you know, that it really saddens me, grieves me. I don't come to church to be in a classroom, or I don't come to church to, to, uh, to think. I come to church to have a good feeling. I come to church to relax. And therefore, I can't relax. I've got to be thinking all the time. I've got to be turning in my Bible and things like that. And you know, that's a tragic commentary on our age. People to get ahead in their work will take courses that are way beyond them and pass them. Think, stretch themselves in order to make a buck. But they won't give the same degree of commitment to God's word. And what we're seeking to do by God's grace is raise up a generation of people, all the way from our kids, right up through our adults, that will have a completely different attitude toward this. It's going to take time. Carl uh, was saying Sunday night, after he heard what I had to say, he's been away from us and down south, been going to John MacArthur's church, and he said that John, made a statement and this really stuck with me all throughout these last couple days Carl he said that that God will take care of the breadth of a church we've got to be concerned about the depth that's it that's where it's at we take care of the depth and keep going on with God keep digging into his word keep growing and God will take care of the breath. Let's grow in his word. We'll get back to this. By the way, we'll be gone two Wednesday nights. But we got two outstanding guys to share with you the next couple nights. So I know that you're going to have a fabulous time in our absence. And uh, next Wednesday, Lord willing, we will be in Jerusalem. And uh, so we hope that you'll... Uh, be praying with the 30 of us that will be getting on the plane Monday morning and winging our way to, to the Holy Land and uh, having an opportunity to study God's Word and, uh, with real living visual aids. And so let's be praying to that end.